I want to uh, give you the text where the words of institution, as they're called, for the, for the Lord's table, for the Lord's supper, for the Eucharist, for the communion. I want to read them to you exactly. Adults, this will make sense to you. And, um, and if you're a grandparent or a parent, you may uh, wish to explain some of this after we're done with our time uh, later this afternoon. Here are the words from the Apostle Paul that he says were handed down to them, the words of Jesus. It's found in 1 Corinthians 11, if you have your Bible, your iPad, or something like that. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I received from the Lord, Paul says, what I handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and he broke it. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took a cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, Paul says. And so we are remembering the Lord's death and, of course, his resurrection. We are bringing together the past, in other words, the Passover of the Jewish people. We join them and we look forward to a future when Jesus will raise that cup in heaven at the great banquet and say, let the feast begin. All of time comes together in one moment here. And so we do well to remember that we are not just living moment by moment, that we're all just a bunch of animals scrambling for some food and sleep, but that we're actually divine people made in the image of God. And when we come together, and I mean together, we are more than what we are individually and we're more than just ourself. Now, God, all hearts are open and all desires are known. You are about to feed us with spiritual food. It is a feast, Lord, that you started, and we participate in it. And so, Lord, as we come, as we come, may we feed upon you in our heart and in our soul. And more than just a small little moment of nourishment, may we be nourished in our spirit and realize we are made to belong to you. And that's why we call ourselves Christian, because we belong to Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we come forward to participate in communion. And we all said, amen. Would you stand with me as we offer up the prayers of the people? Oh, Lord, let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to meet the Son. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. With all our heart and with all our mind, let us pray to the Lord, saying, Lord, have mercy. For the peace from above, for the loving kindness of God, and for the salvation of our souls, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the peace of the world, for the welfare of the Holy Church of God, and for the unity of all peoples, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For our church leadership, our pastors and elders, and for all the churches in our community, 
let us pray to the Lord. For our president, for the leaders of this nation, and for all the nations, and for all in authority, let us pray to the Lord. For seasonable weather, and for an abundance of the fruits of the earth, that everyone may have enough food, let us pray to the Lord. For the good earth, which God has given us, and for the wisdom and will to conserve it and be good stewards, let us pray to the Lord. For the aged and infirmed, for the widowed and orphans, and for the sick and the suffering, especially for those women in Liberia who suffer from fistulas, let us pray to the Lord. And you may uh, whisper the names of people that you know need to have healing and, and uh, that are sick. Pray for Jim, for Pam. For the poor and the oppressed, for the unemployed and the destitute, for prisoners and captives, especially our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church in China and those in Mexico, and for all who remember and care for them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For all who have died in the hope of the resurrection, and for all the departed, let us pray to the Lord. For deliverance from all danger, violence, and oppression, and degradation, especially our children and grandchildren, and the students who live at risk among us, let us pray to the Lord. Whisper the names of your children, your grandchildren, and students you know that are in trouble or struggling. For the absolution and remission of our sins and offenses, let us pray to the Lord. For our forgiveness of those we hurt and who have hurt us, and for our release from re of revenge and the root of bitterness, let us pray to the Lord. Thank in your mind the names of those that you need to forgive and need to forgive you. Defend us, deliver us, and in your compassion, protect us, O God, by your grace. Lord, have mercy. And in the communion of the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, let us commend ourselves and one another in all our life to Christ our God. To thee we give ourselves, O Lord, our God. You may be seated. Well, everyone, uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to kind of thicken things up here a little bit. We're going to do some more... Um, deliberate prayers written out, what's called really liturgical prayers, traditional prayers of the church. Some are actually quite new, and others are really quite ancient. Um, I'm going to uh, help us explore more symbol and uh, explain those sorts of things. And so uh, sit back for that sort of thing and embrace it, and let's see if we can thicken things up a little bit. I'm kind of interested in getting a little more meat on the bone around here when it comes to our spirituality and how we celebrate this, as well as bringing together some more ancient traditions about things. For instance, uh, one of the things that Protestants don't tend to do is cross themselves, and simply Christians all over the world do that in the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church and Lutherans and others. All it's doing is simply saying, like, I am marked by Christ. I remember, I remember that I am marked. In, in my mind, I now physically symbolize, okay, in my mind, I physically symbolize. In my mind, I am now going to tell myself that I'm going to do something that says, I remember that Jesus died for me. That cross is important to me. That's all they're doing. No magic, no mumbo-jumbo, nothing like that. So the problem with the Protestant tradition is that they, uh, the Protestant tradition 500 years ago were so interested in, in the mind and in rationalism and cognating things that they... Um, that they eliminated all the bodily worship. Now, 
it kind of comes out here, here and there. Like the Protestants, you know, I, I mean, the Pentecostals, they'll dance and sing and wave their arms around. It's not really kind of Lakeland shtick. But uh, at least they get their body involved with this sort of thing, you know. And, you know, you might have thought that this morning you stood forever, and, and maybe you kind of did. But that's about what good Presbyterians do is stand for a long time, you know, and, and go, mm, you know, mm. Get your Presbyterian grunt down, mm. And that's like the most exuberant thing that you'll ever find uh, some Protestants ever doing. So, uh, you know, embrace it as you can. Give it a really good heave-ho, mm, you know, something like that, which is shorthand for praise you, God, and everything's awesome. Well, this morning, um, we have a very simple message, and I'm whittling. I'm whittling a stick. And I think my dad uh, wanted to be an old man who would sit around and spit and whittle. They go together, you know. I'm not going to spit, but um, spit and whittling, because we'd go back to Kentucky, to Cloverport, Kentucky, on the Ohio River, where my dad was born and raised. And I think my dad... Uh, wanted to be one of those old men sitting on the courthouse steps, spitting and whittling. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen that sort of thing. I'm not quite sure what the point was. I don't really care. But I think he would thought, someday I'm going to be a spit and whittle old man sitting on some courthouse steps. Now, he never got to do that. But um, I think that was sort of a fantasy of his. So my whole life, uh, uh, I receive, I have more pocket knives than, than I can even find in my house. Because every uncle and my dad and grandfather every time they saw me here son have a pocket knife I'm like what am I doing with all these pocket knives I you know like there was some destiny about it. I'm gonna be a spit and whittle person but that's not really why I'm whittling this morning I'm whittling uh, because I'm gonna make a toothpick and you got a toothpick in your handout did you notice that all sanitary wrapped and that sort of thing I hope if it's not just just drop it on the floor um, and it's a very simple illustration it's a simple illustration that says this. You can uh, take your spiritual life and you can whittle it down to a toothpick through judging other people. You can begin to chop and hack and whittle the tree of life that God has given you when you begin to split and cut and chop and you're going to end up, if you continue in this path of judgmentalism, with a toothpick-sized God and spirituality. And worst, you'll just be an old crank. It's a simple message. And it's for those around here at Lakeland who are especially giving and serving and doing and being good stewards of what God has given them. You see, everyone, here's the thing. When you're at your best in your Christian life, that's when Satan is most after you. Satan doesn't really care about people who are full of good intentions but don't actually ever pray or do anything or give away to charity or anything like that. It's those that are most fervent in their spirituality, that most look like Jesus, that are most diligent, that are most excited about God and other people and about love. That's who Satan's interested in. And there is one, one temptation that works best for people who are doing such a wonderful job, and it's self-righteous judgmentalism. That's the one root of bitterness that will go between the crack of your soul and begin to grow and split it apart. 
And now I bring this message this morning because Lakeland, if you didn't know this, is actually one of the most giving churches in the country. Yes, that's right. Our little church, statistically, and we've had all this work done uh, with financial consult consultants and so forth, we, we are like one of the top giving churches around. And right now we have this uh, thing called Fearless. Gore. You see signage around here that says Fearless. And Fearless is 13 different initiatives that are uh, taking care of women in Liberia who need surgeries. It's feeding people in Mexico. It's supporting the underground uh, illegal church in China. It's taking care of students here in town. It's working in the inner city. It's doing all hundreds of thousands of dollars going out all over the place. You guys are doing a wonderful job. You are following Jesus. This church is actually doing the thing. And that's why I bring this message because it suddenly says, beware, beware. Because here's what can happen. You can begin to say like, well, I'm doing a lot. I'm giving away a lot of money. I'm serving. But that guy over there in the church, he just bought chief's tickets. He should have given that money to the poor. Or they let their kids see a PG-13 movie. I only let my kids see G movies. Now, they can watch Disney Channel all day long, but that's okay. You're like, what's wrong with Disney Channel? Like, there's no parents. Where'd the parents go? Like, you know, I don't know. Nothing wrong with Disney Channel, I guess. Oh, yes, there is. Anyway. Uh, or you can begin to say, like, you know what this country needs? It needs the Ten Commandments in every courtroom. And you begin to split and whittle and chop away and begin to, to narrow down your thinking about what it means to be a Christian. You can begin to say, like, well, God condemns homosexuals, but he looks the other way on divorce. Or God doesn't care if you tell mildly off-color jokes as long as they're cute. And somebody gets a chuckle out of it. But don't ever, don't ever swear God's name because that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And we begin to take our spirituality and chop it and dice it and whittle it down to a toothpick. And we'll begin to say things like this, like, okay, now I think the Bible and God has a lot to say about marriage. And, you know, we got God in our marriage. But I don't, what's that got to do with politics? Why is God involved in politics? I don't think Christians ought to be political. Or you might say, like, you know, God's all over my finances, and I tithe, and I give to charity, and I save, and I'm doing all this Dave Ramsey stuff, and I got Jesus all over that. But, you know, business is business. And if we got to get the deal, then we get the deal. And if we got to sell some vaporware, then we do it. Because we'll make good on it most of the time. So it's okay if we lie. Besides, it puts food on my family's table. And isn't that more important? You see how you begin to whittle it down? You begin to split and begin to make distinctions and begin to... to this is how we go bad in the Christian life. An inconsistent opinion of other people. An inconsistent application of how we understand Scripture and even morality. You see, because I've heard it said around Christians, like, Christians will say, like, well, you can't own a Lexus. That's a luxury car, and Christians shouldn't own luxury cars. But you can get a Honda EXL triple YZ with the gold trim and the satellite this and that. And that's, that's okay. You know why? Because it's an Accord and not a Lexus. 
and it's okay to have an Accord, but you can't own a Lexus. Really? Author Kathleen Norris says that our culture has become excellent at exaggeration and self-righteousness. Norris says that we might think we are far too educated and too liberal-minded and too uh, sophisticated to consider ourselves an old-fashioned word, prig. But she says that's exactly what our culture has become. We've become priggish. We're prigs. And then she goes on to tell us what the dictionary definition is of a prig. And a prig is this. A prig is marked by overvaluing oneself or one's own ideas, habits, notions. And then precisely adheres to those notions of oneself and then disparages others who are not like us. We're prigs. She says Christians are apt to say this. I'm a good person, but God hates homosexuals. I'm a good person, but God condemns homophobes. I'm a good person, but homeless, they're irresponsible bums. I'm a good person, but those who denigrate the homeless are full of evil. Good people like me support our president. Good people like me oppose the president. All this back and forth banner simply declares, she says, how entrenched our habit to sin has really become and how extremely easy it is to judge other people. What happened inside of you when we were doing prayers of the people and it said we pray for our president? He said, well, I'm not going to pray for the president. Or some of you said, well, it's about time. He's the only Christian I know in the whole country. We got both kinds of people here in the room, I think. You see, good Lakelanders, we must be most wary, most wary, most wary when we are acting the most Christ-like. That's our most dangerous place to be when you are at a fever pitch in your devotion to Christ. When you're at your very best, and I'm going to say it, particularly when you are giving away money, when you're being the most generous with your money, because that's near and dear in heart to your heart. Because it's a big sacrifice. It is at that moment, the greater the gift, the greater the temptation to say, well, they're not giving as much as I do. And I know he could. That's when we need to fear the most, our own depravity, and say, be careful now, be careful, because you may end up, you may end up with just a toothpick-sized spirituality. Because you can end up saying like, well, they just bought new carpet in their house. I didn't buy new carpet. I put it off for three years, and we gave that money to the poor. And it splits, and it whittles. Good me, bad them. It's this splitting, this us versus them, this me good, you bad, that destroys the work of Christ and the Christian. This is how the devil uses this beautiful act of generosity to whisper a lie into your heart to kill it. It's the only thing he's got is turn him into a self-righteous, judgmental, you know, moralist. Lose the soft heart. Don't let the fruit of their generosity, you know, come to, come to blossom. 
Make them split and whittle. So they end up saying, well, I serve in the preschool room. What about all those other people with their little kids? And they come and drop them off. And then they stand around drinking coffee out in the lobby while I'm in there teaching their kid about Jesus' love. You see, this tendency to judge and divide and think more highly of ourselves, this isn't a new thing. You already knew this, right? You already knew this was a danger. To become judgmental is, is the great thing, the great stumbling block of, of the fervent Christian. You already knew this. You knew it because if you look through the Bible, you have any notion of ever reading the New Testament, it's all over the place. I had a hard time in even this message saying, like, which verse do I pick out most where Paul or Jesus or somebody warns somebody about judgmentalism? Like, just flip every page. It's in there all over the place. It was apparently a huge problem. It's right there. And so I picked out one out of a, a letter from Paul to the church in Galatia. There, the, book in Gala the letter of Galatians, Paul's on a rant. He's on a rant because Paul, you know, was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi, and I mean really strict moralist, okay? And what was going on out in or scattered around the Mediterranean seas, there was little pockets of Jews. The diaspora was going on at that time because the Roman Empire. And these churches were cropping up, and the Jews, really, really strict Jews, sometimes some scholars say even Pharisees, were there, and they were saying, well, you Christians, you know, these are Gentiles. You Christians, you need to become Jews. You need to get circumcised. And Paul's just livid. He's like, you're killing, you're killing the, the gospel by making these people go backwards into Judaism. Anyway, here's what he says. We just, and this is one of the nicer passages out of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 13. He says this, Paul says, You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. Love your neighbor. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. You want to memorize a passage? Get this one down. If you bite and devour one another, take care you don't consume each other. Yeah? Galatians 5.15. Be careful. You'll eat yourself alive. Now, these strict traditional Jews, who were really, really wonderfully moral people, I mean, much holier than any of us, I'm not kidding, they, they were weighing everyone down. They had they'd taken the Ten Commandments and expanded it out to 613 laws, such as work on the Sabbath was a particular favorite. You, you could tie a knot halfway, but you couldn't tie it the whole way, make a granny knot. Or you, you could only untie half a knot. Because otherwise it's considered work. Or they'd even worked out how far you could walk, because you're not supposed to travel on the Sabbath because that's considered work, before you would have to pitch a tent, make a fire, cook food, eat it, pack up, and then walk a little more, do the same thing. And the Pharisees would actually do this sort of thing because they're to the letter of the law. They're doing it right. You know how heavy of a burden that is? Worse, the Pharisees are hiding out in bushes and around every corner waiting for people to break the law, and then they would jump all over them. It, this is the very enemies of Jesus. This is who Jesus was most upset with, was the Pharisees. Those who had become judgmental, who had whittled down the entire relationship with God to a toothpick. He says, you guys are straining the gnat and swallowing the camel. You, you tithe even your garden herbs, your mint and your dill, 
but you don't take care of your aging parents. You've forgotten the most basic thing about love. Take care of your own. Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath who was crippled. And you know what the Pharisees say? Well, you know, there were six other days during the week where you could have healed the guy. You should have healed him on Sunday through Friday, but not on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, really? Man standing right in front of me, suffering his whole life, and you want me to wait a day? And they're like, yeah. The Pharisees whittled away God's tree of love and healing for the sake of making a toothpick out of the Torah, out of the law. You pick up the Bible and you thumb through the words of Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament writers and you're going to find warnings about judgmentalism all over the place. As a matter of fact, the reason why I read to you this morning the words of institution on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the loaf of bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he handed it out to his disciples. The reason why I read that to you because we, read, we hear that and we think, oh, those are beautiful words. Oh, thank you, the Apostle Paul. That's great. Jesus, this is a wonderful image, you know, the upper room and all this sort of thing. You know why Paul wrote that? Is because there was a massive amount of distinction, judgmentalism, and whittling going on in the church in Corinth. And if you have your iPad or your phone or your Bible with you, it's right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to give you this huge passage. I debated about whether or not to read you such a long passage. I'm going to do it anyway because you need to see the whole picture of what's going on here. And the part that you hear every time in communion or some semblance thereof is really part of a larger uh, discourse where Paul is trying to fix something and it's judgmentalism, okay? So here it is, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11, 17. Paul's saying this. Now, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, keep in mind, by the way, that they actually had a whole meal, okay? They had the symbolic part of it, the loaf and the cup, but they actually had an entire, you know, church potluck basically going on. Let's see. It's not really to eat the Lord's Supper. Verse 21. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in, or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. Now, what you have to understand, early on, there weren't big, beautiful church buildings there in the first century. They had synagogues, and most of the people were all Jews who were, who were the early church. But they were meeting not in somebody's small, dinky apartment or hovel, they met in the rich people's homes where there was a courtyard and, you know, all, lots of room, right? Hundreds of people sometimes. And, um, well, guess what was going on? Some of the people who were becoming Christians were the actual household servants, if not slaves, indentured people. And meanwhile, the rich people in their finery and their robes and purple, you know, they're living it up with a splendid table. And they say like, oh, no, 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 no. All you household servants are brothers and sisters in Christ. You guys go back to your, you know, kitchen work, and we'll get around to you if we have anything left over. And Paul's saying, what? What? How can this be the body of Christ? Then he goes to verse 23. For I received, he's just going to say, I'm going to tell you exactly what I got from Jesus, from the church. 
For I received from the Lord what was handed on to me, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, that is for you. This, uh, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, Paul says, eats and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, the church, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It was a haves and haves not thing going on. Rich and poor, slave and slave owner, lower caste, higher caste. And Paul says, how can you share one loaf and one cup with toothpick spirituality where you're whittling everything down? Dividing and splitting and whittling down who's holy and who's not is a formula to kill the freedom and the joy that we have in Christ. It destroys the church. And it's the dark side of stewardship, everyone. Those of you who are doing the most are in most danger of falling into the trap of comparing yourself to somebody else. And it will kill your heart. Pretty soon at communion, if it continues, you'll be standing in line and you'll be thinking like, well, I deserve to be in first class, and there must be economy. Here, just to take it a step further. Why does Paul talk about the body and the blood of Christ? Why does he talk about the death that Jesus is, is talking about? It's because it is a symbol. I'm going to give you a word, a root word, a Greek word, where we get that word symbol. It's not too hard. It's symbolon. See the word symbol right here? Okay? This means to bring together. Matter of fact, in the Greek, this word literally means advisor and counselor. Okay? But this is where we get our word symbol. It comes from this. Symbol means to bring things together. Okay? What do you think the word is for splitting things apart? Check this out. Diabolon. D-I-A-B-O-L-O-N. Anybody see a root word in this word for anything? Could it be Satan? As in the devil? Okay. Uh, or for you Spanish speakers, Diablo? Okay. Satan always splits things apart. And the very root of the concept is the idea of Separate them. Split people. Racism. Who's rich? Who's poor? Who's giving more? Who's giving less? A symbol brings things together. This cross, early on in the church, they said, the reason why this is the symbol is because earth 
the horizontal relationship amongst each of us and the vertical relationship, our divine relationship with God Almighty comes together with Jesus on this cross. The earthly, who you are, you as a mortal being, are part of the, created, the creation of God. You're an immortal being. You're made in the image of God. You're a divine being. The imago dei, the spark of the divine is in you. And yet, and yet you must eat food to survive. And that's why we have this little symbolic meal where we eat a piece of bread and we dip it in a cup and we eat it and we're saying like, I got to have food to live. And yet, it says, in that same moment, you must remember that you're participating in the resurrection of Jesus. And all of the past from the, from the Passover and those Jews who left Egypt right up to the Last Supper that in the upper room with Jesus and the disciples where he reinterprets it. And that someday when he will raise that chalice and say, let the feast begin in heaven. All comes together in that moment. It says, remember, do this in remembrance of who you really are. It's real food and it feeds us spiritually. It is a divine moment. And we are transformed, we are transformed into Christ. That's why it's called a symbol. But if you want to split it, it's the devil's work. The actual prayer, by the way, uh, that is called traditionally in the church is called the symbolon. And it, it goes like this. It's very simple. It says, let your spirit come upon these gifts to make them holy so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the very core of the theological center of our faith is Jesus bringing together us into his realm. How do we avoid then, everyone? How do we avoid narrowing down our Christian life and spirituality? How do we avoid splitting and whittling and narrowing things to, down to where we have a toothpick spirituality? There's, there are many, many disciplines, and disciplines is what it's going to take. You'll have to be most fervent during these months and years when we are doing the most work around here for Christ. But I'll give you the first one. The first one is, is you, must, you must immerse yourself in Scripture. You must be reading the New Testament. You must be reading the Psalms. You must be reading the stories. You must be committing it. This is what's happened since the second century in the church. Christians, in order to fight off temptation, the number one tool, they said, the number one tool is committing Scripture to, to memory. If you start, if you just simply start with love your neighbor as yourself, you are well on your way. You think that when you're out there driving on that road and somebody cuts you off. Love your neighbor as yourself. Without thinking, I don't cut people off. Like, really? You've never cut anybody off in your whole life, huh? Hmm. Pretty. Or, be careful. If you bite and devour one another, you may just well eat each other up. So think about it before you start getting all snippy and snappy and gripey. You're going to destroy yourself. The other thing that you can do, lighten up. Lighten up. I know everyone's doing a lot of work around here. It's really good. Take a vacation. It may be down to Baldnobberville down there or whatever that is, you know, but go do something. Go down a water slide. Okay? Do something fun. The worst thing you can do when you're most intently serving Jesus 
is to get so wrapped up and so sacrificial and martyred going on that you can't have any fun. Believe me, no one's going to care how much money you gave and how much you served when you're walking around all scowling and been out of shape. Have a vacation, everyone. Enjoy things. If you need to get carpet, then get the carpet. If you got the money and you're not going in some kind of Dave Ramsey debt, just go get a small rug then. It's okay. Get a placemat. <laughs> you know, do something to enjoy life. Take a day off. It was those words of my wife years ago when I said, I can't, I can't do this, I can't do that, I got to do the church stuff. And she said, you are absolutely in charge of your own schedule. That made me so angry. Because she was absolutely right. I am in charge of my own schedule. I can do anything I want. Now, maybe you can't because you got to show up tomorrow morning at 7 or 8 or something like that. But there's a large amount of your time where you can do anything you want. Enjoy life. Go slow. Have fun. Get the revenge back for all the hard work and the sacrifice. If you spent this entire summer and you didn't do one thing fun and it was all I gotta and I should, you know where shoulds come from? Shoulds come from everybody else. Needs come from you. Every, you pay attention to how you say things. When you say should, that was somebody else's idea. When you say I need, that's you. Don't split. Don't whittle it down. You know what we ought to be doing? Instead of whittling, we ought to be growing trees. What we ought to be doing is planting saplings and grafting things into our life that bring life. And someday it will grow up into a huge tree where the birds of the air come and nest in it. And perhaps it becomes a cash crop and we make houses that children can live in. This is what you're supposed to be doing with your life. It was uh, Father Richard Rohr who said in one of his books, he said, you know, in the first half of life, you say no to things. But in the second half of life, you say yes to things. The first half of life is that you're saying, like, I believe in this. I don't believe in that. I, that's wrong. Don't go see that. But hang out here. These are the right people to be with. That's the wrong people to be with. Don't do drugs, all that kind of thing. Second half of life, if you're over 40 and you're crotchety and you're cranky and you're saying no to stuff, get over it. You must be looking at a child jumping in the front yard and smile. Smile. Enjoy life all around you. Otherwise, you're going to end up an old, cranky toothpick. <laughs> and who wants to be around that? And where is Jesus in that? <laughs> this uh, Celtic blessing from the Northumbria community in Great Britain, we've done it around here many, many times. And, uh, but I just wanted to tell you where it came from so you know what it is. Uh, it's a combination of some ancient thought from the Celtic Christian tradition, which is around 7th century. But this particular <laughs> blessing uh, was written by the Northumbria community for an actor who would come and go out of their community while he was not working. He's in their community for several weeks, and then he would go out on a show on the road and, um, you know, be gone, as show business people are. And then he'd come back in to the Northumbrian community. And the guys who wrote the prayer book uh, added this in. So join me in it. And by the way, uh, just as you know, every time you see a little plus sign or a cross in prayer books or on a screen, in our case, 
it means you make the sign of the cross is what it is. See how that tries. Try that one on. See how it goes. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.